This morning, I'd like you to turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, we're going to look at uh, the passage there in the first, the first few verses. Uh, and I know that the, Joe and Abner, they have their plan, Chris, for teaching in Jonah. I didn't want to interrupt that. So I thought we'd stay in the Old Testament, but move to a different text, and this is uh, Isaiah's vision of the Lord. And the reason I chose it is because I'm, I've preached on it before. That's the main reason I feel really good about it. Uh, but, uh, you know, people ask the question sometimes, is, where's the gospel in the Old Testament? Come on, it's, you know, you guys read the New Testament and everything's in the, about the New Testament, but where is the gospel in the Old Testament? Well, if you know the Bible, you know the Old Testament, you, you keep coming to Sojourners, you're going to get to know it better and better, uh, you will find the gospel of grace is all over the Old Testament. I mean, there's a number of places we could turn to this morning. But I really believe that Isaiah chapter 6 is a classic example of the Old Testament revealing to us that salvation is by grace, and that if you, and if you look at the, the whole chapter of Isaiah chapter 6, and don't panic, I'm not going to try to go through the whole thing, but I, I would like to look at some of the f- first verses that are mentioned here that Isaiah writes about. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it begins, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wing, wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at this voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burn. It was not a fun time for anybody. If any of you read any of the Old Testament uh, prophets and read what they went through, it was very, very difficult. Uh, One writer said this, most prophets were rugged individualists. Uh, They stood alone, and usually they stood alone against their, their own culture. And there was always just a small minority group within each uh, generation that would follow them and believe them. But the bulk of the people generally opposed them. And they had a great deal of difficulty on a day-by-day basis. And many of them were unmarried. They had no spouses to give them any kind of support or help. And even some of the ones that were married, like Hosea, uh, did not get any support from his wife, obviously. Those of you that know the story there. Uh, And secondly, uh, they they didn't apply for the job. Prophets did not ask or ask God, pray to God, or seek God to become prophets. They were called. And God is the one who set them apart and gave them the responsibility to be prophets. And some of the prophets did not want the job. Jeremiah is a classic example 
if you read the first chapter where he said, Lord, look, I'm, listen, you, you got the wrong guy. I mean, I, I can't talk very well. I'm not eloquent. And I, I'm, I'm really young. You know, if it's all possible. Why don't you grab somebody else? Because I, I really don't want this job. And even during the course of his ministry in chapter 15 and chapter 20 and other places, uh, he kind of backs away. And even at one point says, I'm not going to speak anymore because he was taking so much persecution. Eventually, they threw him in a pit. And uh, even when he was being drawn out of the pit, he had lost so much weight, they had trouble keeping the stuff around him to keep him, pull him out of the pit. But interesting thing that he said, though, in, in the 15th chapter was, that when I say I'm not going to preach anymore the Lord's word, he said it becomes a consuming fire in my bones, and I can't keep it in. In other words, I believe that a preacher, a teacher who's been called of God, he can't keep it in. He's got to preach. I heard Steve Lawson talking to a bunch of uh, uh, pre-seminary uh, pre students uh, at one of the pastor's conference, I was upstairs and I was working security and they put me in that room where they knew I'd be safe. And, uh, they, they, uh, and I heard Steve say to these guys, he says, I've got to preach. I have to preach. He said, I, I cannot not preach. And so it, it, this is the Lord's work inside these men. And really, when you look at some of the suffering and the persecution and some of the actual torturing, uh, there's no explanation for their perseverance and their continuing in the responsibility and role that God had given them apart from the power of God working in them. And they were elect of God. But I also want to say this. Every believer in this room and every believer in this church and every believer in, the, in, in the America and in this world, whoever lived or has lived or does live, has been elected by God from eternity past. I want you to know that you did not call yourself. You did not volunteer. We were all called and chosen by, by God. We are the elect saints. Why he set us apart for salvation, we don't know. But Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, is very, very clear in saying that your names were written in the book of life and the foundation of the world. You had no say in it. And therefore, we cannot take any credit for our salvation. It is true with our sanctification, we have to put our foot forward and we have to be obedient. But salvation is completely the work of our Lord. And I think that is comforting, at least it's comforting to me to know that he loved me that much, that he set me apart from salvation, from the foundations of the world. Romans 8 said he knew me, and that means intimacy. He loved me and knew me and set me apart for salvation. And that's true with every safe person in this room. You are special. And don't let anyone take that away from you. That is one of the most wonderful things to know about salvation we enjoy in Christ. But as far as the gospel message, when we look at Isaiah here, Isaiah preached to Israel during the divided kingdom. Uh, and that he preached from 739 to about 686. Uh, the northern kingdom fell at 722, and from there on he preached primarily just to Judah because that was the only kingdom left. In 681, it, so the uh, tradition tells us, uh, 
Manasseh, King Manasseh of the southern kingdom, had him sawed in half. And that was, if that is true, and, and we have no reason to disbelieve it, uh, then he met a very tragic end from a human perspective. And this is what happened to many of these men, as it did to the apostles. They died terrible deaths, hard deaths, and the, the persecution that they were under, there was no rationale, no real rationale, no real reason. It was just a hatred for the Lord Jesus. And when someone persecutes you, understand that if they could, they would persecute Christ, but you're in the way. So they persecute you because they can't get to him. So you are suffering for his sake and for his glory. But the thing that that I think is so important here in this text is that we don't appreciate our salvation and we don't appreciate what the Lord has done for us if we don't appreciate the holiness of God. It all begins when we begin to understand that God is absolutely holy. And Jesus even said, he said, when they asked him what the two greatest laws were, he said, the most important is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how many can say that they ever, that ever say that they have loved the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength continually, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, every minute of every day up for your whole life? And how many can say even if you loved your neighbor as yourself? Usually when we see our neighbor in trouble, we go the other way. We don't want to be involved. In this day and age, it can even be dangerous to be involved because the way things are now, you can do your have the best efforts, and, and somehow somebody will figure out how to blame you for whatever your, problem, your neighbor's problem was. So there's a lot to be concerned about here, but it begins with the holiness of God. And Isaiah is, authenticates his call, and he puts it here in the sixth chapter. So remember that when you look at the sixth chapter, this is his call. The first five come after that, but they're not that way in terms of sequence in your scriptures. So he begins in chapter 6, verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death. King Uzziah was, started out to be a really good king, and, uh, but he lost his way toward the end. When he interposed in the uh, temple, and he tried to assume the role of the priest. And you must understand, and we're not going to get into this, but I want you to understand that the king of Israel was never to be involved in making sacrifices or in involving themselves in the role of the priest in mediating those sacrifices. They made sacrifices, of course, but the priest was the one who mediated those. Uh, Uzziah had ruled in Israel for 52 years, and things were very, very good at the time, economically and militarily. But he began that we get so filled up with his own pride that he entered the temple and usurped the role of the priests, and God struck him with leprosy and for his violation of that. If you look at Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, it will tell you that the role, the dual role of king and priest is reserved for the Messiah. 
And to usurp that, as he had done, was a violation of God's law and God's plan. So God struck him, and then in his, he died here, and he's in the year of King Uzziah's death, 739. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Now, following this good king, Isaiah no doubt thought, well, what, what's going to happen now? And maybe that's the reason he's in the temple praying to seek God's understanding, God's direction, God's wisdom, God's comfort. Because overall, Isaiah had, Uzziah and had, had been a good king. So he's in the temple. He sees the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. When we look at this, we begin to see that the Lord God begins to tell us and tells us here something very, very important we need to know about him and see it in this way that he is a holy, holy, holy God. Uh, He saw him on the throne. He was lifted up. He was a transcendent God. He's lifted up above all of his creation. He's lifted up above all of everything he created, everything he made. He is transcendent. He is above all things. And he is unique, and he is the one and only true creator God. And when he saw him sitting lofty and exalted, it says the train of his robe filled the temple. In ancient times, robes, robes and, and uh, gowns of monarchs, their importance and their authority and their power was measured oftentimes in the length of the robe. And even if you ever saw a royal wedding of any kind, you will see the train of the bride's robe uh, following as she goes down the aisle. Uh, The length of the robe said a lot about the loftiness and exalted position of that particular monarch. In this case, his robe not only fills the temple in these great billowing robe, filling the temple, Later it says that the whole earth is full of his glory. It isn't limited. God is not limited. And so his robe is filling the temple and fills his glory, fills the whole world. Seraphim stood above him, and having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And in this particular instance, you may want to remember that angels are sinless. Angels are perfect beings. Angels, in, in, in this particular case, seraphim, the definition is burning ones. So they, they were bright, burning vessels. And they were holy. And they were without sin. And yet, when compared to the Lord God, they have to cover their eyes to look because they do not want to look at the one who burns even brighter, the one who burns the brightest in all the earth. So having the, the, the first two, they cover their face, not looking upon the great God and Savior. Covered their feet. You remember when uh, God appeared to Moses and he said to him, take off your sandals for where you are standing. 
is holy ground. Again, an issue of humility. The recognition they are created beings and humbling themselves before the mighty Father, the mighty God who created them. Uh, when we look at this, we see then, and, and we might want to think of Matthew chapter 3, because there's a lesson here for us. Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5. When you look at that, Jesus is preaching his sermon on the mount. And he says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountains. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, began to teach, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's talking about those who understand that before God, spiritually, they are bankrupt. They have nothing to offer, nothing to put into their account, nothing to appeal to him with. They had absolutely nothing. They were poor in spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, You were dead spiritually, dead in your sins, and unable to offer God anything. And what's he say? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn for what? Mourn over their sin. Broken over their sin. And finally, uh, they shall be gentle, uh, referring to humility of heart. And those, that's just to start us off in understanding a little bit more about the gospel message and what it really amounts to. But as we go back to Isaiah chapter 6, with two, they flew, demonstrating that they obeyed immediately. They were very swift and very quick. Whatever command the Lord had, they flew. They moved quickly in obedience to their Lord, their Creator. You might want to ask yourself, of those three issues, how quickly do you obey? How quickly do you move to obey? <laughs> There's no pathway to honor yourself, to glorify yourself, to take credit for anything having to do with your salvation. You know, recently in the pastor's conference, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a big discussion about the whole social justice issue. And there are those, and very disappointingly so, who actually sought to introduce the issue of social justice and, and try to make it part of the gospel. One of the things that our pastor has fought so diligently and opposed so aggressively as he should. That's adding something to the gospel that is not there. And let me tell you something else. <laughs> something R.C. Sproul said one time, and I'll never forget it. Don't ever ask for justice. Don't ever ask for justice. If you get justice you'll be on your way to hell. Those are the kinds of things that we as Christian people, as believers, these are subtle things that Satan is trying to introduce into the gospel message and will compromise it. That's not a message that God instituted. That's a message coming from men who want to please the society and the culture in which they minister. There's nothing more dangerous than to find yourself a man pleaser. 
One of the things that caused the prophets to stand out was the fact they were not men pleasers. That's what caused them so much trouble. That's why they suffered so much. Because they went against the grain of their culture. They did not surrender to it. So when we look at this then, he covered his feet, his face, he covered his feet, he flew. We can take an example from all of that. And then one called out to another and said, Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Where else do you see this trilogy, holy, 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 except in description of the, the primary attribute of our Lord God? Even the other attributes that God possesses, love, mercy, you don't find anywhere... God is love, love, love. You don't find anywhere that it says God is merciful, merciful, merciful. All his other attributes have to be seen in the context, in the light of his holiness. It's it's his holiness that gives his other attributes weight. And this is where we need to be focused on the holiness of God and see yourself in relationship to that holiness. The reason some people don't feel like sinners and don't like to be called sinners is because they look at the guy down the street that's drunk three nights a week or cheating on his taxes and bragging about it, and they measure themselves against the lowest and weakest person in their their neighborhood. And then they come to the conclusion, well, hey, I'm okay. I'm better than he is. The Bible says to measure yourself against God. He's the standard. He's the standard of holiness. If you're not measuring yourself against the holiness of God, then you're not measuring yourself as the scriptures are directing you. And that's so clear in this passage. And this is why we people come, we as sinners come into this world desperate for the salvation that Christ alone offers. Desperate for what the cross has done for us. And if you don't see yourself in that mode, understanding the desperate condition that you are in, you're not going to come to true belief in Christ. And I'm saying true belief because I think there's false beliefs. There's shallow beliefs. There's people who say that they're saved. Oh, yeah, I follow Jesus. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Jesus warned in Matthew 7, there are going to be many who are going to say, Lord, Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord, and Jesus is going to say, I knew you not. What does it mean to truly be saved when you come to Christ and confess your unholiness and your sinfulness? Is it, are you embracing Christ fully, completely, absolutely? Faith has to do with intimacy. Faith has to do with absolute truth, and faith, true faith, nourishes the soul. Jesus said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. I'm the drink that if you drink from me, you'll never thirst again. You'll never hunger again. Have we ever thought about the fact that eating is the most intimate thing that you do? There's nothing more intimate than eating. Why? (laughs) Because when you eat, 
You take the food, you masticate it, you swallow it, it goes into your esophagus and into your uh, stomach, and then the body separates it out and takes the nutrients and repairs the cells with the nutrients that that gleans from the food. Why would Jesus say, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood? Why, Why would men, especially in Roman Catholic position, take such a silly position. I mean, it's, it's comic book theology to suggest that Jesus was saying, you must eat of my flesh, meaning that in a literal sense. He's using that as an analogy to say to you, if you have truly acknowledged your sin before me, a holy God, and you have truly in, in, embraced me in true living faith, then the dynamic of that change is going to be evident, and you're going to manifest it before a watching, frankly, disgusted world when they see and hear your testimony for the most part. Why? Because you've truly taken it in. You, 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 can, you can look at food. You can touch food. You can even taste food. But it's not going to nourish your body unless you swallow it and give that food an occasion to be broken up and nourish yourselves. It's the same way with the Lord Jesus. You can have a false face, faith, and that's not going to save your soul. You have to take him in absolutely and completely, and it's an intimate relationship now. And that's the only way that his salvation is going to nourish your soul. We don't see his glory filling this earth because we're not looking for it. We're on our way to the bank. We're on our way to the job that we're going to. We are, we're on our way to the doctor or the grocery store. No, you don't want to go there these days too much. And uh, we're not looking to see his glory. I know when my wife and I went to Arizona and saw the Grand Canyon, we saw the Wyoming and saw the Tetons, or when you go out and you and you look at, at at a blooming flower that's just now coming to life. I grew up in the east, and and I can still remember those first snowflakes, the, the first snowfalls of the season, which I couldn't wait to leave and get out here to California where I have to put up with all that. But the fact still remains is it's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. You find and discover in this world in which you live that what you are looking for. You're not going to see God's glory in all this creation unless you look for it. And if you look for it, it is there. And just as his robe filled the temple as an example, so his glory fills this earth for those who love him and know him and have embraced him and are looking for his glory. These things are so, so important for us, and we miss them. We have to look for the beauty in this world. And it's getting harder and harder to find it. I realize that. I understand that. But it's there, and it's never changed. And when you look at those mountains, my wife and I were in Arizona this past weekend, we past week, and saw those mountains, and the grandeur and the beauty. It's just awesome. And believe me, I'm no environmentalist. I'm talking about this from a 
divine perspective. He created all this. And we, because of our sin, are the ones that are messing it up. Well, we've got to move along. The foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. The whole, the whole temple trembled, shook. The timbers that made up that temple cracked and reverberated. Because even these inanimate objects that, that the temple was made from, wood and stone, even they had the good sense to shake in the presence of God. And we need to shake in his presence as well. The foundations trembled and filled with smoke, registering his judgment, indicating to us that he will not tolerate sin indefinitely. Well, we see the holiness of God. And what is this prophet's reaction to this? Understand that Isaiah was the most righteous man in all of Israel at this point. A godly man. He was in the temple to worship and to plead and maybe to seek God out, whatever he was there for. The Bible doesn't tell us. But he was a righteous man by human standards. And I'm sure that he was, to, to, to a certain group within Israel, he was certainly honored and respected. And what is his cry here? Woe is me, for I am ruined. The word woe has to do with a word that comes, it says, means judgment. He was literally calling down God's judgment on himself for his sin. And, and the word that's translated here, ruined, some of the older versions use a different word, word undone. And probably they, the, the translators changed it slightly because we don't use the word undone anymore. My grandmother used it, but I don't think too many other people do. But literally what it means is I'm coming unraveled. I'm coming undone. I'm coming apart. Or we might say today, I'm coming unglued. I'm coming apart. My body is disintegrating. Judge me, Lord. Because why? I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And what has caused, what has brought him to this point to see this? For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. The king. Uzziah was a king, an earthly king. He's dead and gone. But he saw the king, the one and only true and living God, the real king, the true king. And even as we heard this morning, uh, the earth and all of its, uh, all of God's glory, all of his creation is really not Satan's to give. It's not Satan's. In Daniel chapter 7, the Lord God, the Ancient of Days, gave the earth to his son. The one like a son of a man approached the throne. Jesus is the rightful ruler of this earth. Satan's rule, 1 John 2, 
I remember John, 1 John 4, uh, it's a temporary rule. When Adam dropped the scepter of rule, Satan was right there to pick it up. And he has temporary rulership, but he has that temporary rulership under, under the absolute authority of Almighty God. And just as we see in Job chapter 1, he can't do anything like God does not allow. Don't you ever think that your Lord and God has surrendered his rule of this earth to Satan. He has not done that. He's allowed him to have temporary rule until he comes back in Revelation chapter 19 and takes it back, which is what we're waiting for. The sooner the better. He said, for the foundations, the smoke, I'm ruined. I live a man of unclean lips. Mark chapter 7 Jesus says this, and I think it's interesting that we look at this. This is important for us to understand. John, in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus said to them, rightly does Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, you, you, these people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And how many times we could, we've seen this, and how many churches and how many places we can look and see that very thing taking place. And uh, he moves on and explains to later on in verse 14, after he called the crowds to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing, listen, outside the man which can defile him if, he, if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. And his disciples then in verse 17 question him. And he said, are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it, go, it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and it's eliminated. And he said, which... That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, slander, pride. All these things proceed from within and defile a man. The point here is, he's saying, my lips, the lips disclose the evil that's in the heart. So he says, I'm a man of unclean lips because before God, I have an unclean heart and my lips give evidence of that because my eyes have seen the king. And now we see God's grace, the burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Who initiated that? Who initiated the forgiveness? Who took the responsibility and role of ministering to this broken man before the Lord God? God took that initiative. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid. They hid from God. That's the natural response that you would expect from them. 
They had disobeyed God. They were aware they disobeyed God. And what did they do? They ran and hid. Who took the initiative to seek them out? It was God. Where are you? Well, we knew we were naked. Who told you you were naked? And later on, who provided the skins for the temporary covering? It was the first time anywhere in Scripture we see bloodshed pointing to the one who actually could take away the sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who initiated all that? Who initiated the whole sacrificial system? The one who is offended by our sin. He's the one who has to determine how that situation is rectified, how it's changed. The Lord God did all that. He's the one that orchestrated the whole sacrificial system, which was there for what reason? To point to the ultimate sacrifice. Bulls and goats can't take away your sin, but the Lord Jesus can. But he allowed this law to be in, put invoked so that we would understand as we followed along who ultimately it's actually pointing to, to take away our sin. I, I want to show you something that I think is incredible. Look at Job chapter 19. People say, well, where's the gospel? Job, you know, is being persecuted by his friends. I don't know what time I'm supposed to be done here. Uh, Anyway, well, sometime. Uh, In Job chapter 19, it says here that uh, Job, of course, is being attacked by his friends, and they're trying to find a reason for these terrible things that are happening to him. And, of course, they're trying to find that because they got to relieve the pressure on themselves. I mean, if this righteous man Job can can have all this stuff happen to him, (laughs) it makes us vulnerable. So we've got to figure out something, some sin in this man to justify what God is allowing to happen to him so that we're not under the gun. And, and uh, Job, of course, has defended himself throughout this, this book and up to 19. But listen to what he says in verse 23 of chapter 19. Oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that with the iron stylus and lead they were engraved engraved in the rock forever. Now listen, verse 25, as for me, I know my Redeemer lives. And at last he will take his stand on the earth. Even my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. You know, Job was the oldest book in the Bible. It's the book, first book ever written. <laughs> How did Job know about a Redeemer? Where did that come from? He knew it because God had disclosed these things to him. Where's the gospel? There's the gospel. There's, 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 the, res- there's the Redeemer. There's a resurrection. When he says that my, my, my skin, from my flesh I shall see God, he said my skin is destroyed. It's all pointing to the gospel. 
And, and then you look at Isaiah chapter 6, and we see this holiness of God, and then we see God taking the initiative of bringing salvation to, to, to Isaiah. He taking the initiative. And then, what, what, when are we supposed to? Oh, well, we got a lot of time. Uh, <clears throat> but when, when you look at this, you, you, you see, first we have to understand the holiness of God. Look, look at Luke chapter 5. And I don't think any, uh, any commentator who's ever written on Isaiah 6 hasn't included Mark, uh, Matt, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 5. But uh, it, look what happens with Peter. Uh, it, it's a, an amazing thing. Uh, in chapter 5 of Luke, uh, he was stand, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying on the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people. When he finished, he said, put, put uh, your net out in the deep water and let it down in your nets for a catch. And Simon Peter answered, Master, we, we worked hard all night, caught nothing. I mean, this was Peter's job. I mean, that's what Peter did all of his life. Probably as a kid growing up, the first thing he ever learned was how to throw a cast of net into the sea and catch fish. This was his, his role, his responsibility. This is his labor. And this itinerant preacher is going to tell him where to put his net? Come on. But he says, well, okay, Lord, I'll do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, so much that the nets began to break. And these were strong nets. There was so much fish that they began to break. They signaled to their partners in the other boats for them to come and help. You have to understand, you know, when you look at some of these movies that the Hollywood made in the 50s, portraying some of these apostles as old, weak, probably old men, uh, I got to tell you, nothing could be farther from the truth. These, these were fishermen, been fishermen and doing this stuff all their life. They were strong, hardy men, powerful men. Probably put Arnold to shame. Uh, well, <laughs> nowadays that wouldn't be too hard, I guess. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> when Simon Peter saw that, now listen to his response. Look at his reaction. He fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Why? He knew. And by the way, and I don't know that we want to make too much out of this, but he moves from master. He says, Master. Okay, if you want me to do it. Now he says, Lord. Uh, he recognized unequivocally that he was in the presence of Almighty God. Now, how, what happened to him when he realized that he was in the presence of Almighty God? He immediately saw his sin. When you recognize you're in the presence of Almighty God, absolutely holy God, true and righteous God, the creator God, the God who created you in your mother's womb, the God who, you know, Elvis used to sing a song about your entrances and your exits. I probably shouldn't bring Elvis into this, but uh, that all comes from Shakespeare. 
He is the one who originally said we all have our entrances and our exits. All the world is a stage, and we have our entrances and our exits. Well, (laughs) when he saw Jesus, he realized he was the one he, he was the one who directed and formed his moment of entrance and would determine his moment of exit, just like he does with all of us. He knew he was now in the presence of Almighty God. That couldn't do anything else but bring him to his knees and worship, and not only worship, but say, Get away from me, Lord, for I am indeed a sinful man. I'm a wicked man. I'm a terrible man. He wasn't comparing himself to James or John or his brother Andrew. He now saw that he was comparing himself in the presence of Almighty God. And when I measure myself against Almighty God, I come terribly, terribly short. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? There is none righteous, no, not one. But the wages of sin is the wages of sin is death. But and there's that adversity, the, the, the but that even though the wages of sin is death, we now have the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. The salvation through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, so when we look at this passage. And we look at Isaiah chapter 6, and we see him, and and we see Isaiah, we see the same thing with the apostles. When they saw Jesus, they saw their sin. And Jesus took the initiative in coming to this earth and dying to take away our reproach. He is our Redeemer that Job spoke of. And now that he's been cleansed, Verse 8 says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. And you know what? Here's an amazing thing. (laughs) You think about you've got a tough job living for the Lord. Imagine that you've got this kind of a job. He says to him, Go and tell this people, keep on listening but do not perceive. Go, keep on looking, but don't understand. He's telling him to render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then he says, How long, Lord, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the, fors- and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and there will be a tenth portion of it, a tenth portion. When I read that, the thought hit me that Jesus said in Matthew, again, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, straight is the gate and narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. But wide is the gate, broad is the way, and many who go in thereat. Same way in Isaiah's time. There's always going to be a small, a tiny, comparatively speaking, a tiny remnant 
that are going to hear your message, hear the message of the gospel, respond and be saved. Our pastor has said this many times, I think. I know I've heard him say it. I don't know many times, but Christianity is not, quote, a religion for the masses. And even over these past 200 years in America, we have embraced a kind of a cultural Christianity, but not a true saving faith Christianity. And by the way, some historians, I think Toynbee made the comment in one of his writings, the average civilization is good for about 200 years. Most civilizations, that's as long as they've lasted. <laughs> when you look at what's going on in Washington, when you look at what's going on in our own state, and you wring your hands, a lot of people are moving. I don't know where they're going to go, but <laughs> we're way overdue. People ask me all the time, where's American prophecy? There is anywhere you can find American prophecy. We have to accept the fact that we're part of a minority, 10%. Matter of fact, Ralph Dale Davis wrote a book, wrote a commentary on the stump nation bouncing off of this verse. That's all there's ever going to be a remnant. That's all, a minority group. And our job is to bring the message to everyone and anyone who will listen. Even if they reject and accept the fact that the majority of the people that you bring the message to, they are not going to accept it. And yet you must keep moving forward and never give up and never relent and never quit. Because this is God's calling for you. And we've got, had it so good for so long. We've come to the mistaken understanding that this earth, that this country we live in is a playground. And we want to keep playing. But we're being forced now to take our Christianity seriously and realize this is a battleground, not a playground. And the playtime is drawing to a close. The question is, are you going to give it up and quit? Are you going to persevere? And Scripture tells us if you persevere, if you persevere, that's indication you're truly saved. But if you quit, well, then we know you aren't. And now is a time in America where God is working. If you excuse the expression for you ladies, <laughs> separating the men from the boys or the girls from the women, I have to be take care of everybody here. Uh, so you, you understand that this is, this, things are probably not going to get any better. Matter of fact, they're probably going to get worse. And when they get bad, and, and you're looking for some wiggle room, go to the scriptures. Because I'm going to tell you something. You're never going to find wiggle room with politicians, no matter who's elected. The wiggle room comes from this book and nowhere else. And let me just close with a scripture verse from Job. 
and then we'll quit. In Job chapter 12, verse 13, with him, God, our wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. Behold, he tears down and it cannot be rebuilt. He imprisons a man and there can be no release. Behold, he restrains the waters and they dry up. He sends them out and they inundate the earth. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The misled and the misleader belong to him. He makes counselors walk barefoot and makes fools of judges. Listen, he loosens the bonds of kings and binds their loins with a girdle. He makes priests walk barefoot and overthrows the secure ones. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on nobles and loosens the belt of the strong. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into light. And listen, he makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. And he makes them stagger like a drunken man. You want to see that text? Turn the TV on and watch the news. Father, we thank you for the time you've given to us. Thank you, Father, for... I, I certainly pray, Lord, that you've shown us that you're the only one that we can turn to in these difficult times in which we live. You're the only one who can sustain us and keep us and hold us. You're the only one who can motivate us and drive us in those times when we want to quit or give up. Jeremiah tried, but you wouldn't let him. And Lord, I pray that all of us in this room are true believers and you're not going to let us quit either. Because you have put your word in us. You have written your law on our hearts. You have redeemed us. And you have taught us your word. And you have put us in a church where the men that lead here are completely and absolutely committed to your word. Not their wisdom, not their discernment. Your wisdom, your discernment, your word. Following you relentlessly. Without equivocating and keeping one foot moving forward in front of the other until that glorious day when the heavens open and you redeem your church, bringing this out in the rapture and then ultimately returning to reclaim the earth, the title deed, and set up your millennial kingdom. This is what we look forward to. This is our hope. And you, Lord, secured it for us on Calvary. When you cried out, it is finished. The work of salvation is done. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us into your kingdom, which give, giving us an inheritance which can never be taken away, securing our home in heaven. Jesus said, I go, to where, go away to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. We long, Father, for that place. Not streets of gold, not palaces, but to be where you are. That's heaven. And we thank you and praise you for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.